So today we will be continuing in our series titled The Servant King, and our scripture reading is Mark 14, 1 through 25. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have, better, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, good to be with you. My name is Nate, if I haven't met you yet. Um, well, we've been in the Gospel of Mark since September. So a little bit of time here. And we're almost at the end. And what's interesting, when you open up the Gospel of Mark, as we did in September, uh, it, it starts on this remarkable note of hope. Um, it starts with healings. It starts with this 
overwhelming power of Jesus to cast out demons. Uh, it, it opens with Jesus speaking about this good news of a kingdom. It, it's this triumphal note that the kingdom of God is coming. It's breaking in. And yet, we're at the end of Mark, the last three chapters, and it's getting dark. It's getting very dark. The whole gospel of Mark, and including the, all of the three gospels, all of them funnel into the final week of Jesus' life, death, and his eventual resurrection. In fact, I think it's something like 40% of the gospels focus on this week. And that's significant. Uh, that says something about Jesus. It says something about who he is and what he's come to do. And consider this for a moment. Of that week, the primary focus is on his death. Now, just think about this for a moment. Who wants to follow that? Uh, let me put it this way. In commentators note that the gospel according to Mark was written probably most likely to the church in Rome. And this church in Rome would have been gathering as the one in charge was Nero. Uh, if you have ever heard that name, Nero was not a fan of Christianity. Uh, in fact, um, one of the things he's known for is that he would take Christians who had been martyred and he would light them on fire for garden parties. Now just think for a moment. Why would Mark spend so much time focusing on Jesus and his death and his suffering when he's writing to Christians who are identifying with Jesus who are suffering? Why? What good is that? Or let me put it in today's terms. You might be here and you might be, let's say you're 20-something or maybe early 30s or maybe you're a teenager. You might be saying, I've got my whole life ahead of me. What? Why do I want to focus in on somebody's death? What, is, what does that have to do with it? What would that mean for my life? You know, perhaps no one has put it more plainly than N.T. Wright, when talking about the death of Jesus, he, he, he wrote this. The death of Jesus of Nazareth as the king of the Jews, the bearer of Israel's destiny, the fulfillment of God's promises to his people of old, is either the most stupid, senseless waste and misunderstanding the world has ever seen, or it is the fulcrum around which world history turns. Did you catch that for a moment? What, what N.T. Wright is suggesting is that it's one or the other. <laughs> you see how binary that is? It's either stupid and senseless, or it's actually the one event upon which everything matters. And Mark compiles 12 scenes in his account. We're going to hit two today. Next week and Good Friday, we'll hit the other 10. But Mark is trying to show us 
that Jesus' death is the fulcrum around which world history turns. So, three things today this passage shows us. Firstly, the importance of Jesus' death. Secondly, the character of Jesus' death. And then lastly, the meaning of his death. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Father, pray this morning that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our hearts may be pleasing in your sight. For you are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the importance of Jesus' death. You know, the first scene opens uh, with Jesus reclining at a table. He's spending time at a house of a man named Simon the leper. And as he's sitting there, a woman walks in and she has an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. The text says it was very costly. Um, this ointment, commentators know, uh, would have probably come from someplace like the Himalayas. You know, this is, they didn't have Amazon, right, two-day delivery back then. This is a very hard thing to get. Uh, and the value of this would have been probably somewhere around fifty or $60,000 in current U.S. dollars. And she breaks the flask and pours it on Jesus. I mean, this is an incredible act of devotion and love. But then if you caught it, there is some who are not so happy. Some say, hey, couldn't have this been sold and distributed to the poor? The scene just got very awkward, did it not? This, this act of devotion by this woman has now been met with criticism. And Jesus is in an awkward spot as well because he has this fifty dollars or $60,000 worth of ointment on him. And people are saying, that could have been used for the poor. Like, this is getting awkward. How is Jesus going to respond? What is he going to do? But look at verses 6 through 8. Jesus says this, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Um, <laughs> this is fascinating because even as you read it, you almost get a little bit like, Jesus, did you just say that? Did you catch it? Where Jesus says, you will always have the poor with you? Wait, are, Jesus, what, what's going on here? I thought you cared about the poor. But there's a key here. Uh, Jesus links her anointing to preparation for burial. Do you see what's happening here? She didn't come in thinking that. But Jesus says, this is what it's for. It's, for, it's because I'm going to die. And she's preparing me for it. And this is what's interesting. The contrast comes down to this. You'll always have the poor, but you'll not always have me. Now, just a quick side note here. 
when Jesus says, you'll always have the poor, that's actually a direct quote from Deuteronomy 15. And what follows after Deuteronomy 15 is that God's people ought to always be responsible for those who are poor and help them. Keep your hands open. Like that's actually Jesus quotes from that right after that saying you have an obligation if you worship this God that he cares for the poor. You help the poor. But Jesus says, here's the distinction, the poor, they'll be here always, but this is a special moment. I'm here. I'm going to die. And that's why this is appropriate. This isn't a waste. And notice what he says next in verse 9. He says, And truly I say to you, what, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Think about this for a moment. This woman's act was initially criticized, right? How could you do this? It says the, that those around him scolded her. And Jesus says, you have misunderstood what's happening here. Think about this. Why do we commemorate things? Why do we remember what people have done? It's because they do something amazing or spectacular or that changes things, right? And Jesus says this. There's a gospel, there's good news that's going out to the whole world. And when that goes, her story is going to be told. Now, I can't quite get to the third point yet, but what I want you to understand is that Jesus' death is linked to this gospel. And here's the point. All of this zeroing in is showing how important Jesus' death is. This is why when Jesus says she has done what she could, Jesus saying, she could have maybe given more, but this is all she had. And my death is so important, it's actually wonderful what she did. Jesus is saying that my death is so important that it is a part of this gospel going forward to the end of the world. So Jesus right away shows us the importance of his death. But secondly, Jesus shows us the character of his death. Here's the question. Let me ask you, how did Jesus die? I know it sounds like a silly question, right? Because we're going to Good Friday. We know he died on the cross. But I'm asking this question. How did he get there? In the opening of chapter 14, we hear that the chief priests and the scribes are plotting to kill him. And it says in verses 1 and 2 that they're doing so in such a way by stealth. And they know they can't do it with a crowd around him. Now here's the reason why. In Jerusalem in that day, Jerusalem was about 50,000 people. But when the Passover happened, which is when all this is taking place, it swelled to over a quarter million in the, in the city. And many of them were from Galilee, which is where Jesus is from, which means if you take Jesus out, they're a fan of Jesus, you're going to have riots everywhere. So they're opposed to Jesus, but they can't do anything with him in public. And the other problem is, they don't know where he's going to be in private. Until we read in verses 10 and 11 that Judas is now in on it. 
In verses 10 and 11, we read this. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Um, here's the problem. Judas knows exactly where Jesus is going to be. He knows all of his movements. He knows where he goes. The plot that the chief priests and the scribes are doing is now getting stronger, is it not? So here's the question. Maybe Jesus has just been outwitted. Or how about this? Maybe Jesus being killed is just a matter of those who, he had great intentions, great intentions, but it's just the forces around him were just too great. The oppressive regime, those who opposed him had too much power. Maybe that's why he died. He's a good man, but tragically died. But notice what Mark shows us in verses 18 through 21 of this account. And as they, speaking about the disciples, were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Notice this. Jesus is completely aware of what's happening. He knows who's betrayed him. And he calls him out in the meal. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't stop him. In fact, in John's gospel, John records that Jesus says to him, uh, what you are going to do, do it quickly. And notice even in verse 21, he speaks about his death being something written beforehand, which means Jesus views his death as that which is his destiny. It's what he's here for. It's what he's come to fulfill. But also notice, he could opt out at any time. And here's what we're going to see this week, next week, and Good Friday. You're going to see this. Jesus goes to his death willingly. No one forces him. No one outwits him. He goes voluntarily. And friends, that matters. So that's the importance of his death, the character of his death, but lastly, the meaning. Um, in verses 22 to 25, we get to a section that actually, if you've been any Sunday with us here at Redeemer City, it's actually very familiar. We've gotten to the Lord's Supper, right? The Lord's Supper. A meal. But what you may not realize 
is that up until this point in Mark's gospel, there's actually maybe been one, potentially two places where Jesus has talked about his death in a way that's talked about what it's going to do, its meaning. But it's here where Jesus speaks plainly. It's his most explicit explanation about the meaning of his death, and he picks a meal to do it. And it's the Passover. In other words, before it was known as the Lord's Supper, it was the Passover. So just a brief moment. The Passover was an annual meal which commemorated the most significant event in Israel's history. God's deliverance of the Jewish nation through miracles and judgments from bondage in Egypt. And it was named the Passover because of this. The final plague of judgment that would happen on the whole land, including the Israelites, the Egyptians and the Israelites, was that the angel of death would come and would kill the firstborn in the house, except God gave the Israelites this instruction, take a lamb, kill it, put blood on the post, and when the angel comes, he will pass over your house. And when the destroying angel came, that's exactly what happened. In every house where there was not the blood, there was a firstborn that was killed. It was God's justice coming down. So this was the meal that commemorated that. And there were actually four cups of wine. And each cup represented a promise. The first was a promise that God would bring them out. The second was, I will rid you of your bondage. The third, I will redeem you. And the fourth, that God would take his people and he would be their God. So here's the deal. When we pick up verse 22, we were at cup number three of the meal. And Jesus was the host. And at this point in the meal, the host would take the bread and he would say this, this is the bread of our affliction. And it was to commemorate the hardship, the hardship that they faced in slavery. So notice what Jesus says in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Jesus just went off script. Notice Jesus began to say, this meal is about me. Or put it this way, when Jesus says, this is my body, in that moment Jesus is saying, this is not the bread of your affliction, but this is the bread of my affliction. It is a moment where my suffering is going to bring about your ultimate deliverance. And then he grabs the cup of wine, the third cup. And notice what he says in verse 24. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Did you catch that? Blood. Now, here's the question. This is a great one. Uh, Tim Keller makes this great, great point. He's like, so let's just think about this for a moment. They take the blood of a lamb, put it on the doorpost. Like, why does that save them? Why does that make the destroying angel go over them and not bring down judgment? What does a lamb have? And the, and the answer is, it doesn't save them. The lamb doesn't save them. But what Jesus is saying here is what John the Baptist said in the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, the Lamb of God, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the Lamb. And this is the deal, because I said this earlier, but the Egyptians and the Israelites, the oppressed, and the, and the oppressive, they're all guilty. But it's those who take shelter under the Lamb. And Jesus grabs a third cup, says, take and drink, this is the cup of the covenant in my blood. He's saying, I will redeem you in my death. And see, don't you understand for a moment, let's go back for a moment. Point number one, the importance of his death. Do you understand how important his death is? Do you understand why it was worth fifty dollars or $60,000 to anoint him in that moment? Because his death was going to bring about the deliverance for the whole world. That's the gospel. Do you see the character of his death? Jesus, knowing his destiny, knowing why he's come to suffer, he goes voluntarily and willingly. No one forces him. And he lays it down. So what does that mean for you and I? When Jesus says, take and eat, when he says, take the cup and drink, what he's saying is this. You've got to trust it. If you don't take this in, you don't have it. If you don't, if you don't receive what I've done for you, you don't have it. In order to take shelter under what I've offered, you've got to put your faith in me. Now, let me give you three places you might be this morning related to even that question of faith, because we're all on this continuum. The first is this. Some of you are not Christian this morning. Some of you might be exploring Christianity. Maybe just coming back to church after a while. You're just not sure. And, you know, one of the things about living in Madison, Wisconsin, it's a very progressive city. And so even the thought of a blood sacrifice seems really, well, to put it like burgers, it's passe. <laughs> really... Uh, just middle age, excuse me, middle ages, not middle aged. That's middle age. You, you might say something like this Cannot God just love us? Why does it take a sacrifice? It, again, Tim Keller's helpful here. He, he makes this helpful point. He says, All real love, life changing love, is substitutionary sacrifice. And he, to put it this way, some of you are new parents and you are exhausted. Because your kids are not sleeping. 
and you understand that you love them, and to love them means you give up your sleep to make sure they're okay. That's real love. Or how about this? Some of you who are in school right now, and you're in middle school, and it's the worst time of life, maybe, potentially. And the reason is is because, you know, let's be honest, there's the cool kids and the not cool kids. And think about for a moment, if, if you're the cool kid, and you go hang out with the not cool kid, what happens? Some people come to you and they say, why are you hanging out with her? Why? Because their uncoolness is now rubbed off on you. You're, there's a price to pay for loving the marginalized. All real love is substitutionary. And this is the point. God is saying, I love you and this is how I love you. It is substitutionary. It's what I've done for you in my son. Second question, how much faith do you need? Um, I mean, let's be honest. Some of us, <laughs> we are strong and we are confident in our faith in Jesus. And others of us, not so much. We're constantly looking in the mirror going, do I have it? Do I not have it? I don't know. Do I have enough? Uh, years ago, D.A. Carson gave this example And he said, picture two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown the day before the Passover, and they're having a discussion. And Smith says to Brown, boy, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And Brown says, well, God told us what to do through his servant Moses. You don't have to be nervous. Haven't you slaughtered the lamb, put it on the doorpost with blood? Have you done that? And Smith says, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary. The threat of the firstborn being killed, you know, it's all right for you. You've got three sons. I've only got one. I love my Charlie. And the angel of death is passing through tonight. I know what God says. I put the blood there. But it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when this night is over. And Brown says, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. And that night, the angel of death sweeps over. And here's the question. Which one lost his son? Neither. Neither. Why? Because death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. Listen, it is not the intensity of your faith or the sincerity of your faith. Nevertheless, it is the object of your faith. It is the object of your faith. That's what counts. And so that's the question. What are you trusting? Thirdly, lastly, why the meal? And what I mean by that is, why do this repeatedly? Jesus says, you know, keep doing this regularly. You might come here on a Sunday and be like, why do you guys do this every week? I get it. I know what happened. I know what this is about. Why would we do it every week? Um, 
Let me put it this way. If you know the story of Israel, you know it took one night for God to rescue them from Egypt. But you also know afterwards they're complete failures. Constantly not trusting him. Constantly not walking with him. And you know, they've, they, they were in the desert for 40 years, wandering. And the answer is this. It took one night to rescue them from Egypt, but it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of them. And if you know what I'm saying, it's this, is that all of us, if you're a Christian, all of us are in process of appropriating, taking what we know in our head and working it into our heart and applying it to our lives, and it takes time. Let me give you an example. Um, years ago, there was a campus worker in Ivy League school who told the experience of most of the women that she met with on this campus. And she talked about what was pressuring these women as they entered their college years. And she said, number one, their parents have said, never get less than an A. And you gotta understand how incredibly hard that is because when you go to an Ivy League school, and this is actually every school, it's, it's a bell curve. They only give out so many of those. You can't give all A's, everybody, right? So it creates this incredible competition and pressure. Secondly, they're told, live a rich and full life and include in it some altruism. So get serving, help someone who's in need. Thirdly, they're told, be hot. This too is competitive because there's only so many guys out there. It affects how they dress, affects their relationships. Thirdly, in all of this, there is no room for error. And she said, in that school, 80% of the young women in undergraduate are suffering from eating disorders and will be at some point clinically depressed. Because the world keeps telling them they can be anything and soon this demand is they must do everything or be a failure in their own eyes and in the eyes of others. Do you hear the pressure? And then they come to know Jesus. And guess what happens then? They feel the pressure to become the best Christians. And this looks like attending Bible study, leading prayer groups, faithfully recording devotions. And this worker said, which is all good, yes. But oftentimes it is driven by this. If I can only do more, I will be accepted by my peers and by God. Do you hear it? Remember, the third cup is, God, I will redeem you, not you redeem yourself. And this is lived out in our lives. If only I do more, then I will be accepted by God. Listen, you, you don't have to be an Ivy League student to understand what's happening. You can be a middle manager, a single 20-something, a teenager, a grandma. You can be a pastor like me who preaches week after week about the gospel. And, and guess what? We all need it. We all need the penny to drop. That God has done everything to rescue us. And that there's a tangible difference living in light of that. It transforms you from the inside out.
Which is why Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Keep having the meal. You need the gospel. Christian, non-Christian, you need the gospel. One last thing. Jesus leaves us in verse 25, this word. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I have rescued you, I will redeem you, and one day I'm coming back and we're having a feast. And let me tell you what, everything you long for, everything you are working so hard for, it's all found in him. It's all in him. And it's coming. There's hope. Do you see why we're slowing down, focusing on his death? Do you see how it is the fulcrum around which world history turns? Do you understand how that changes Monday morning for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to take this, this reality of your death and what it means. We pray that you would help work it out in our lives. Lord, in the midst of our pride, in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our achievements, would you help us to find you and what you've done for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.